So let's start Hebrews chapter 12. I'm not going to cover the whole chapter because it's impossible to cover the whole chapter in the half an hour or 30, 40 minutes because I could in fact talk to you all day on just Hebrews chapter 12. There is so much on that. There is so much. I'm going to only pick five topics out of the first half of Hebrews chapter 12. Right, let's start reading from verse 1. We're going to only cover up to verse 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, before the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have, be, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who, who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he thought it was good. The background to Hebrews, book of Hebrews is this. There was an apostasy taking place. People were leaving the faith. They found it difficult in the midst of tribulations, trials, and persecutions. And therefore the author of Hebrews decided to exhort and tell the church, tell the people, they should hold on to the faith. 
And the faith that we found in, in Jesus is greater than everything else. We have given the su subject, Book of Hebrews, the title is Jesus is greater than. Yes, it is. That's what the author is trying to say. Jesus is greater than everything. The today, the, the title says Jesus is greater than life. Yes, Jesus is greater than pretty much everything. Even as I was preparing this message, I had to keep pausing and then going back to prayer and then say to God, thank you for everything that I have, including the bread that I came for, which is Jesus. I've said this before, and I will never stop saying this, is that we never, ever have to stop and think to breathe, do we? We just do it. How much do you pray for your pay for your oxygen? Not a penny. Do you work for your oxygen? No. But you keep. It's a gift from God. Even the very breath that we take at this moment is a gift. Every breath that you take, I almost felt I started singing when I was saying it. <laughs> but I wouldn't. It is a gift from God. So the author is writing to the church, to the audience, the recipients, and he speaks to them by using an analogy of a runner. The Christian journey is not a sprint. It is a marathon. And there's a huge difference between a sprint and marathon. You could speak to they they would tell you, I know that they used to be a runner. And you can speak to um, Charmaine, because Charmaine goes uh, for running quite frequently. And in, 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 <laughs> fact, in fact, Rob does quite a lot of marathon and Ironman and all this stuff. I try. Yeah. The last week, um, when I took Abby for um, a physio appointment, while Abby was being seen by the physio, I sat there in the reception and I was looking at the men's health magazine which had a section about runners. And, and it was titled, Run Your Belly Off. That's what the title was. And then there's something that caught my eye in that it says is that when you are a non-runner, that if you want to run, the first thing you need to be careful is you do not go hard because it's slow. The reason when you run, apparently every time when you land, you put four times of your body weight, the pressure of four times of your body weight on your knee. So can you imagine if you're running, if I'm say 50 kilos, I'm more than 50 kilos. Every time when you land your foot, you're putting about 200 kilograms weight on that knee. And that's why you have to be very careful. And that's why the author here is saying, if you are a runner, what is he saying? Therefore, since we, we are surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. If you want to be a runner, if you want to avoid injury in your Christian journey, in your journey if you want to prolong, because it's not a sprint. If it's a sprint, don't care. It's just 100 meters, you just run like a demon-possessed person, or if a, a lion or a dog is chasing you, just run for your life. That's it. At the end of it, if you fall down, it's fine. You finish. But 
Marathon doesn't work like that. It's all about endurance. It's sustaining. It's persisting. It's persevering. But in order to do that, you have to keep yourself injury-free. If you are to keep yourself injury-free, then you need to make sure that you haven't got any additional weight. You need to get rid of all the weight, whether it's additional fat within your body or something that you're wearing. You need to get rid of it. But almost pretty much when we start this passage, he starts off by saying, therefore, right? I kind of jumped the gun when I started. When the passage starts, therefore, it means there is something else prior to it. So we cannot go without um, referencing to it. And therefore, let's go to chapter 11. What is he saying? This is what he's saying. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weaknesses, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So what he's saying, these men of the Old Testament, actually the author starts, if you read chapter 11, he starts from the creation, how God created everything in the beginning, and then how everything else conquered and achieved through faith. And he's saying, people have done through faith all of this wonderful stuff, but my favorite part is this. Now let's carry on. And he's saying, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were, these are my favorite part, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sown in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom this world is not worthy? Is it the people who through faith conquered and all the other great achievements? It's the people who suffered with their faith. Very often, if you listen to the faith teachers, they will always tell you through faith, you can get what you want. You name it, you claim it. Our God owns sheep and cattle over thousands of hills, and therefore you can ask God anything from jet plane to submarines to anything, God will give it to you. They will tell you that's what faith is for. But they forget to teach you or they don't want to teach you that through faith, these people suffered persecution. you telling these people suffered because they didn't have faith? Some of them were sown into two. Can you imagine someone taking you into an empty theater or say Wembley Stadium and put you right in the middle, thousands of people cheering and they let out lions into the middle. While you're alive, you're not sedated. And these lions haven't been fed for weeks. And these people had faith. Do you think they were put in that place because they didn't have faith? And can you imagine some people were sown while they were alive, they took a saw and they saw them into two. 
I said I'm going to make you uncomfortable this morning, but this is fact. This is in the Bible. And, and I said in the beginning, you said Christ is enough for me. And I asked the question, what if someone comes to knock on your door and say, unless you deny Christ, we're going to take everything from you. What would you do? Is it in the Bible? Well, see what it says. For whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for, uh, for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. What happened to these people? They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves because they couldn't be in public eye. They were hunted down like criminals. These were Christians. I've got a book here. A tiny little book. I would recommend every single Christian to read this book. You should read this book. If I said to Abby yesterday, if I had the money, I'll buy a copy for every single one of you. You could sit down and read it in one go. Let me read you something from it. This is in AD 235. This is what happened during the sixth persecution. This persecution was begun by the emperor Maximinus, who ordered all Christians hunted down and killed. Tomatius, a Roman senator, and 42 other Christians were all beheaded in one day. And their heads were set out on the city gates. Calpodius, a Christian minister, after being dragged through the streets, was thrown into the Tiber River with a millstone fastened around his neck. Creators, a Roman nobleman, and his family and servants were barbarously tortured and put to death. Martina, a noble young lady, was beheaded. And Hippolytus, a Christian prelate, was tied to a wild horse and dragged through the fields until he died. Maximinus was succeeded. And then he goes on and on. You could actually sit down and read in one go. This book will challenge you and comfort you and will cause you to become more zealous for God and question your integrity and how committed you are. And all of that, it's called Fox's Book of Martyr. I've read this book three times. It's the third time I'm reading it. And Christians, this is what was happening to the Christians. And that's why the author of Hebrews writing this to encourage them that, look, these things happened to people in the past, but yet their faith sustained them. And therefore, you need to endure like a marathon runner. The Christian journey is not a sprint. It's like it's not a dash. You have to persevere. But he doesn't stop there. And he says there's a cloud or cloud of witnesses. When you say cloud of witnesses, it doesn't mean they're all sitting there and being our cheerleaders. They say, oh, come on, go on. Oh, you can make it. Yes, that could be true, but it's more than that. What it means is by saying clouds of witnesses are you saying, there are lots of people who've been through this journey before you. You could look to them for inspiration. You can find strength by looking at their lives. And then he says, the perfect example for us is Jesus. He's the perfect example. Can you imagine? 
the God who created the entire universe, this sinless God, he was tortured in the hands of sinful men. The men he created, and yet he persevered till the end. He did not give up. He had every single temptation to give up. Can you imagine if someone comes to you and they're torturing you and you got the power to make them vanish like that, what would you do? I tell you what I would do. I would laugh at them and say, you fool, you don't even know who you're fooling. Turn them all inside to God. Jesus could have done that. What did he do? He chose not to. Sometimes people say, well, Jesus was God and that's why he was able to. No, it's even harder when you are God. You know why it's harder? Because you are not only facing the suffering, you have to resist the temptation of using your power. That makes it even harder. You see, it was even harder. So Jesus resists the temptation. You say, how do you know? Well, what does Satan do when he was in the, in, um, in the wilderness, when he fasted for 40 days? He was hungry. What does he say? Oh, you're son of God. Why don't you turn the stone into bread? You're hungry. Just feed yourself. He resisted. When he was hung on the cross, he was bleeding and he was in pain. He was in agony. And what does he say? The crowd says to him, if you are the son of God, come down. And there was a temptation to show everyone who he is and just say, send lightning and thunder and then just burn them all. He doesn't do it. He goes through the pain. He goes through the suffering. So Jesus is the perfect example for us. So, and therefore, we need to lay aside everything. What are the influences that keeps us from running this race? What is that distracting us in going ahead and the course and the purpose that God has called us for? You know, in the 21st century where we live, there's so much distraction. There's so much distraction. There's so many things that screaming at our to get us to get our attention. I even I find it difficult sometimes to put my phone down. How many of you have the da- difficulty to put your phone down? It's hard, isn't it? When you finish a hard day of work, come home, you just sit on the sofa. You automatically you don't even think. You just pick up your phone and you just start scrolling. I'm a news junkie. Honestly, ask my wife and my children. They say I'm a news junkie. I check every single channel to see what di- what's the difference between their news, how they report it. There is distraction everywhere. So the author is saying, well, I'm not going to spend too much time. And he's saying, we need to run. There is a group of people who run before us, and then they persevered. And there's Jesus, the perfect example. He is better than anyone. He's the author. He's the perfecter of faith. In fact, this morning I was woken up about 2 o'clock and I was praying. And I was praying for unsaved members of my family. And then I thought at that moment, I said, God, it's no matter how hard we preach at people, unless you invite them, they're not going to get saved. 
unless you reach out and touch them, they're not going to get saved. And I said to God while I was praying this morning, 2 o'clock, and I say, Lord, the reason I am a follower of you, I am a child of you, is because you reached out and touched me. And that's why I'm saved. Otherwise, I would never got saved, no matter how many people have preached at me. It would never got down to where it needs to go. So I prayed, I said, God, please, would you do that for my sisters? Please, would you do that for my brothers who are not saved, that you will reach out and touch them, touch their hearts and their souls, so that they will be saved? See, at the end of the day, it's God. It all comes down to Him. He is greater than everything. So the, so the, the next three points are the points that I want to quite hammer out. The author next, he talks about, and he, just before we go that, and he's making an appoint here while he's talking about all these persecutions. And he said, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Is that supposed to encourage us? Yes. And he's saying, if you're thinking that you're being really tested, if you think that you're going through the mill, let me tell you something. You have not been tested to the point where you have to shed your blood. What happened to Christ? If when he was praying, his blood wasn't spilled, and his sweat turned to blood. And that's how much pressure he was under. And then he was tortured. And he was saying simply, sisters and brothers, you're thinking about keeping your faith, and he's saying that you have not been tested yet properly to the point of shedding blood. Do you know what happened to Jesus' half-brother James, who was, at, at the beginning, who was a very skeptic of Jesus, used to make fun of Jesus? And when he, after Jesus' resurrection, when he became a Christian, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and then he became such a devout man that he's he didn't take any alcohol. He didn't drink any alcohol. That he didn't eat any meat. That he didn't shave his hair. And he didn't wear any woolen clothes. He only wore linen clothes. And therefore, he lived such a devout life. He was allowed to go into the holy place in the temple. And you know, the Christianity was growing so fast. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, they looked at James and said, they said, James, these people do listen to you. And therefore, what we'd like you to do is we want you to tell these people that stop follow, following Christ. So what they said, the best way to do that, everyone can hear you, if you climb to the top of the temple and then you speak to the people. So James got to the temple of, uh, top of the temple. And then when G James got there and he started telling about Jesus and the Pharisees thought, oh, it's backfired on us. We expected him to turn these Christians away from Christ. But in fact, he's telling them they should follow in Christ. And therefore, they shouted at saying, even this noble, holy man is being deceived. So they climbed to the top of the temple. They pushed James from the top of the temple. And when he hit the ground, he didn't die. What he did was, he rolled onto his knees, and he started praying for the people who threw him down from the temple. You know, James was a, such a devout man of prayer that he had knees like the knees of camel. Because his knees, the skins of his knees, lost senses because he spent that much time in prayer. That's how James lived. So finally what happened, one of the men said, hey, hang on a second. He said, 
This man is actually in fact praying for you, even after you threw him from the top of the temple. And one of the other men, you know, those days, they didn't have washing machines. They used to beat the clothes with an uh, instrument. So another man walked up with a, this instrument that they used to beat the clothes and beat James to death in front of everyone. This is how Christians live. And they held on to their faith. And that's what the author is saying. We have been called to this race. We need to persevere. But we have not been tested to the point of shedding blood. And then the author is saying from verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The third point I want to make is that we are sons and daughters of God. Those who are ladies sitting here and saying, like, why not daughters? It only talks about sons. Well, daughters are included because when the Bible was written 2,000 years ago in the ancient world, it was more of a men's world. The men kind of, they had all the kind of like bigger roles. The women had their roles and the women were included when they like say mankind, that mankind includes women as well. So when you say sons, don't think that, oh, it's irrelevant to us. No, it's relevant to all of us. So what he's saying is any father who loves his child, he disciplines his child. And in fact, he's making a statement. He's saying, if God doesn't discipline you, what are you? He's saying, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. What the Bible is saying, God loves us, but loving means disciplining. Disciplining is painful. Discipline is painful. It's painful for the child. It's painful for the parents. Any parents here, do you enjoy disciplining your child? No, it's never it hurts you as much as it hurts them. They don't believe you when you tell them. They never believe you. They say, disciplining you hurts me as much as hurting you. But they say, no. They don't tell you. So my son's standing there and waving his arms. And I don't tell you that, Dad. Earlier on, Jane brought the picture about the eye. And I think it's written there. God says, you're the apple of my eye. If anyone touches you, he touches me. So when God disciplines us, it does hurt us. But he has to. Because every child, no matter how cute they are, no matter how angelic they look, they are sinful. They are selfish. They are rebellious. As soon as they learn to speak, what is one of their favorite words? No. Mine. Where does that come from? If you take the toy away from them, what should they be doing if they're actually godly, holy children? They should be praying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. <laughs> they don't do that, do they? They throw themselves on the floor and then they pick up a big cry and they scream their heads off. And if you don't discipline, you will regret. That's what the Bible says. Do you know this week I looked at 
this is not on, the, on any main media. I found it on a Christian website. In England, in the last few years, assaults by children on their parents has been increasing. Not in hundreds, in thousands. Children assaulting their parents. Why is that, I wonder? When you don't discipline them when they need it, when they need to be, they grow up with selfishness. They grew up, grow up with rebellion. We live in a day and an age where loving means you don't tell me that anything upsets me. If you tell me something that up upsets me, then you don't love me. That's what the world tells you. If you tell someone is wrong, then you are hating them. That's what the media tells you. If you disagree with me, you hate me. It's gone bonkers. I tell you, it's gone really. This week, I saw a YouTube, a university student. Andrew, you probably would like it. A university student. She accuses the lecturers and the people who correct papers, and she said, if you correct my grammar, then you are a white snob. I'm coming from an ethnic minority. If you tell me my grammar is wrong, that you are a racist. But come on. If it's wrong, it's wrong. So that's the world we live in. You cannot correct people anymore. You cannot tell that they are wrong. But the Bible says, if God loves you, he's going to correct you. He's going to discipline you. But discipline means it's going to hurt you. It's painful for you and for God too. Do you know, God gave Joseph a dream. And he want, God said that he will be a ruler one day. This young man, this teenager, he was so happy about it, he went and rubbed it in all of his brother's faces. Told all 11 brothers, he said, you know what? One day I'm going to be the ruler. All of you are going to bow before me. And that didn't go down well, very well with them. He ended up being sold as a slave because of that. But he did become a ruler one day. But what was the path that God chose? To bring him up to that point. Pain. God doesn't necessarily cause the pain, but he allows the pain. There's a difference between love. So he had to be sold into slavery. He was accused falsely of rape. And he ended up in prison. And in all of that, what was God doing in Joseph? He was shaping his character. He was dismantling, breaking down the pride and the arrogance, everything that as a teenager that he had, because he was daddy's best boy. He had specialist custom fit coat, a multicolor coat none of his brothers had. He was God, his dad's favorite son. He had special treatment. God had to break him all down. Break it all down and teach him humility. And therefore what happens 17, 13 years later when Joseph became the ruler, second in command in Egypt, 
when he had the opportunity to punish his brothers, his brothers are now, they're scared. They remember everything they've done to him. And they say, and therefore, please forgive us. You know what he say? Don't worry about it. What you meant for evil, God turned into good. How could this teenager, now as a grown-up, could say such a thing? After this voice, this brother who sold him to slavery, and he suffered quite a lot, he, he was accused of rape, all of that because of these 11 brothers. But he turns around and said to them, don't worry about it. What you meant for evil, God turned to good. Why? Because God used all of that experiences to turn his character into a godly character. My sisters and brothers, the thing is that God is far, far more interested in shaping his character in you and me than we bringing our sin to him. Have you heard the story of refiners, um, the silversmith, where this woman went to the silversmith uh, workshop? I tell you if you haven't. This woman asked the silversmith, how do you refine silver? And she saw him, he sat patiently by the furnace and he was holding, uh, heating the silver. Do you know silver, in order to purify it, you need to put it in the hottest place in the fire. So what happens is that that heat, it gets rid of all the dross and all the uh, impurity in the silver. And then she said to him, then how do you know when is the right time? Because the danger with silver is, if you don't take it out at the right time, it will be no use. It will be oxidized. So you have to take it off the fire at the right time. And then she said, how do you know when is the right time to take the silver out? And he said, that's easy. I keep my eyes all the time on that silver when it's boiling and when it's heating. The moment I see my reflection on that silver, I go black. The moment I see my reflection on that silver, I know that's the time for it to come out. When God puts you and me in the fire, in the furnace, he doesn't walk away. He does not walk away, dear brothers and sisters. Let me tell you, if this morning you've got no excitement through this message, if you get all of them making you feel bad, take this as a positive thing. Is that when God puts you and me through the fire, he doesn't walk away because he knows if he walks away, we will be burned. We will be no, there will be no good for us. But he sits there patiently. He sits there patiently. His eyes are always, always on us waiting till when. Waiting till he starts to see his reflection in you and me. And when he sees his reflection in you and me, and he decides it's time for him to take you out, take, take you out of that situation. Until then, there's no shortcut. You have to sit in that fire. I have to sit in that fire. God will take us through that fiery furnace. That's what he did with Joseph. The Bible says when God made man, he made man in his image and in his likeness. When Adam and Eve sinned, 
we've lost that image and likeness. It's got marred. We haven't totally lost it, but it's got marred. But God is in the process of reshaping his image in you and me. But in order to do that, he has to put us through the fire. Persecution is that fire. It is coming. We, who those who live in this country, in the West, we don't know what persecution is. But two, three hundred years ago, the Christians who lived in this country, they experienced that. Some of them were, I, I tell you, pick up this book and read it. You can read it in one go. And you will see there was one man, he was put on a grill. The fire was set underneath and he was put alive on the grill. And he was burning because he's a Christian. And they asked him to deny he wouldn't. And then he was burning so much. And he shouted at the torturers and he said, I have been roasted enough on one side. Can you please turn me to the other side now? That's how strong his faith was. So God is calling us to persevere. But it involves pain. We are his sons. As his sons and daughters, God will, God will discipline us. And he hurts us, and he's God too. This is what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. His megaphone roused a deaf world. God whispers in our pleasure, but in our pain, he shouts at us. That's what it really means. That means we learn a lot more about God in our pain than in our pleasure. And my next point is, do not let your hardships turn to bitterness. That's one of the things that we need to be careful. I'll, try, I'll finish it in five minutes in the next two points. When we go through hardships, when we go through pain, if we don't see them through the eyes of scriptures, we don't see them through the eyes of God, our pain and our suffering will turn us into bitter people. We could become very bitter. Have you come across people who are bitter about church? People bitter about Christianity? People bitter about leadership? You see, one of the worst things that, one of the things that I fear the most, the older I get, is, I always pray to God and say, please do not let my heart become bitter. We have all heard the statement, people say, what doesn't kill you could only make you stronger. I, well, I don't agree with that. Not necessarily that's true. What doesn't kill you not only make you strong, it, is, it could make you strong, but at the same time it could make you bitter too. I have come across a lot of older people who have been through rough times in their childhood and they are still bitter about it. Some bitter people, you need to only spend five minutes with them. You could feel all the bitterness coming out. And you leave their presence and you feel exhausted. And I love to be with older people despite how terrible things they have faced, but they're still cheerful. There's something about them. They're joyful. There's some warmthness about I like to be around those people. People easily feel the bitterness in you and me. It, con it contaminates. 
It does. The Bible says, what does it say? It says, this is what it says. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. By bitterness, people become defiled. What does that mean, defiled means? Contaminated. You cannot use it. So, as we go through our Christian journey, the experiences that we go through, we need to see those experiences through the eyes of God. We need to see the experiences through the Scriptures. We need to see those experiences through Christ who suffered everything, who is greater than everything else. If we don't do that, we become bitter people. I tell you what, I don't want to be a bitter person when I have grandchildren. Because all they would see is a bitter granddad. You don't want to be around a bitter granddad. You want a fun granddad. Have you been around very miserable, bitter people? I'm not being disrespectful to anyone. I know I'm going to get old. I'm on my way. It's not nice. It's not fun. Especially bitter Christians. That's even worse. So the author is saying, you are called to run this race. If you are not careful in this race, if you don't fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of this race, who is Jesus Christ, and your experience will turn you into bitter, when you become bitter, it spreads like a cancer. It spreads. Malachi chapter 3, verse, oh, I, will, I won't go there, I'll leave it. And it, it, what it says in here is God is waiting for the sons of Levi. Like, uh, he's like a, a refiner sitting by the fire, the example I've already shared, like waiting for them to be purified. God is in the business of getting us refined. So we need to be careful when we go through the refining process that we don't become bitter. And it does no good to anybody. And my last point. Be wary of misplaced values. First of all, I go to the points again. We are called to run a race. Second, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus. Third, I forgot my point. We are the children of God. Fourth, let's not give in to bitterness. And finally, be careful of your values. Don't misplace your values. The author is saying about that in verse 16, that no one is sexually moral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for single meals. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What the author is saying, Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob, the twins. But Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. How foolish is that? In the, in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, when you have children, the oldest son gets double portion. That was the custom. For example, say, let's take the 12 children of Jacob. You have 12 children, 
So if you have estates, you have lots of wealth, you will split it into 13 portions. And the two portions goes to the oldest. And the rest of them get one portion each. Whereas in this story, Isaac has two children. The lesser children you have, the greater is the issue. The more children you have, it's not that great because it gets brought, broken down into smaller chunks. But when you have less, especially two, then you think about the entire wealth gets split into three, and two of them goes to the firstborn. And what makes it even worse here is the firstborn is not that old. It's only about two minutes old, actually. I was there fair. I get that all the time at my home. How is that fair? And you know what my response is? I know my boys are sitting there at the back listening to me. My response is always to them, get used to it. Life is not going to be fair. The Bible never says that it's going to be fair. So, come to the story. What happens one day Israel comes home? He's hungry, he's tired, he's worn out. He wants to eat. And he sees his brother, little brother, twin brother, making some stew. Just think about it for a minute. Isaac was a wealthy man. He had servants and everything. What was Jacob doing cooking? Maybe it wasn't at home. Maybe it happened somewhere else while they were hunting or while they were picnicking or while they were just shepherding their sheep. Anyway, cut the long story short. So Jacob showed opportunity. He's a clever little rascal. And he says, you want my sheep? Let's do a deal. Sell me your birthright, and I'll give you my boiled sheep. How foolish is that? He sold his birthright, two portions of his entire wealth, for a boiled sheep. But if you read the story, it's not about that. The problem is not that. The problem is Esau's attitude, how he responds. He says, I am dying here, and what good is a birthright to me? Pretty much he's saying, if I'm dead, I'm not going to inherit it anyway, so give me the sheep. Honestly, do you, do you think that he was going to die? The only way he could have died is if he hadn't eaten for more than 40 days. I mean, you could go quite comfortably a couple of weeks and run without food, still not die. I know I'm not going to talk a lot about food because I know Andrew's going to talk about it. But the attitude that he had towards his right. So what's the point I'm trying to make here? He placed the values in the wrong place. As Christians, sometimes we misplace our values. He misplaced the eternal value on a temporary thing. Do you see the point? He lost his name in the book, in history. He sold his birthright. Sometimes we are get tempted and tested with temporary pleasure with cons eternal consequences. 
there is so much temptation for now. In the society that we live, Jesus says, live for now. Live for now. It's instant world. Instantaneous. Everything instant. All you care about is today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Well, we need to live in the present, but with the mind set on future. Because our destiny is not here. Our destiny is in the future. If we only live for now, we lose out what God has for us. Our eyes should be fixed on the altar. And that's why Jesus did not take the opportunity to meet his temporary pleasures, to turn the thorn into bread, or to save his physical pain by refusing to go on to the cross. Because the Bible says he had his eyes set on the joy that comes after So in our Christian journey, we need to look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. This journey is long. You are not, and I'm not in it for a short term, but a long term. And it's not easy. And when people do things to you, be careful not to let your heart become If we said, Chester, I would really encourage us this morning to look a deep, take a deep look into our hearts and ask ourselves, is there any weak position in me? Towards anyone? Towards anything? Sometimes it could even be against God. We are bitter because God did not answer certain prayers. I've come across a lot of people that say, well, I prayed to God for my grandma and then she died even after I prayed and they're still bitter about it some people thrown away their faith because you know Darwin was a believer but he prayed for his 12 year old daughter that she would survive but she died and he did never really recover from it I don't know. That's what I've heard from other scholars say. He never fully recovered. And that's why Darwin had that if we change about God and everything else. Because if we are not careful, our experience could become different. And we need to make sure our values, our eyes are on the eternal thing, not on temporal things. We don't live for now. We live for eternity. But we live in the present with our eyes fixed on the future. And keep our hearts always filtered through God's word. And look through Christ. And don't leave it for another day. If you know someone hurts you. If you know someone causes you pain. Deal with it now. Take it to God and ask him to take it clean away. 